You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 20. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me officers, sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under, under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jane. And if you haven't met me before, my name is Luke and I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill West. And uh, our family's school, Heathdale Christian College, is celebrating its 40th birthday this year. It's amazing how much it's changed over that time. When we first arrived in 1986, it was uh, 35 years ago and there was probably less than 100 students and everything back then was very unformed. It was just a, a little huddle of portable classrooms on these stilts and, and mud everywhere. Uh, the library was tiny. It was kind of the size of about half this stage and, and I was small and even I thought it was small. Uh, that's how small it was. Uh, And the whole school, all of the students could fit into two classrooms for our school assemblies. And then the last day of school every year, we would all go away for a church picnic, like the classic Christian dagginess. But the entire school would go away together. And it's amazing how it's all developed since then. It's a big, thriving school now, 1,800 students across two campuses and fancy new buildings and good facilities. And in fact, some of the very first buildings that were built are now being replaced. It's, it's developing. And I say that it's my family's school, not because the school belongs to us, 
but that in a sense we belong to the school. Uh, we've been involved in it for so long. My parents taught there for more than 30 years. In fact, my mum's gone back to teach there. She's in her mid-70s, still going strong. Uh, me and my brothers went there. My wife works there. My sister-in-law used to work there. Uh, basically, at any one moment in time, there is a Nelson on campus. That's basically the rule. Uh, and there's many people like us. Uh, there's all of these great photos from the early days of people building the school, quite literally. You know, these dads uh, working together to put these portables together. This cool, like they're all wearing these early 80s fashion, which would be incredibly ironic and hip right now, but actually just, that's what they wore back then. 1980s dads are the first hipsters. Uh, and there's this cool thing where uh, some years ago to kind of commemorate the way there's been so many people who had kind of built the school in lots of different ways, uh, the school made this kind of special monument it's a simple monument, just a, just a brick path, but they invited anyone who'd been so involved in the school that they could buy one of these bricks, get their name on it, and then that brick would be part of the path, part of this monument. Lots of people did it, and I think it's really fitting because it represents the story of the school. Lots of different people coming together to build something together, giving their time, their energy, their money themselves to make Heathdale Heathdale. And I was thinking of that this week because this week's passage feels very similar. In Nehemiah chapter 2 and 3, we see God's people come together to do the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, giving their time, their energy themselves to this work. And it's almost like the bricks that they put together bear their names. And at the centre of it all, leading the way and organising everything, is Nehemiah. Now, we met Nehemiah last week. And we saw that he's one of the most remarkable leaders in the Bible. He was a Jew, and uh, when we found him, he was working as cupbearer for Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, a very important and influential job. He, he had a good life, really, in Babylon, but his heart was in Jerusalem because he had a heart for God's people. And God's people are struggling in this moment. 140 years before this, they'd been destroyed by the Babylonians. Their homeland had been overrun, the promised land that God had given them. The walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. The temple had been desecrated. Lots of the people that have been killed or exiled. This was God's judgment for their repeated and defiant sin against him. And yet he brought them back to the land in his grace. But despite that, they're still struggling. In chapter 1, verse 3, we saw that they were in great trouble and shame. They'd begun to rebuild everything, but then Artaxerxes, Nehemiah's boss, had put a stop to all of that. And so they're in this place of suspended animation, kind of not sure how to go forward and stuck where they are. They're physically and spiritually vulnerable. Without city walls, they could be attacked by someone else, and we're going to see in the next couple of weeks the, the enemies that they have. They're spiritually vulnerable too, vulnerable to temptation or infiltration from other cultures and vulnerable most of all perhaps to discouragement. As David Jackman puts it, the work of God is paralysed and the people of God are demoralised. And when Nehemiah hears about all of this, he's greatly grieved and he mourns for days and nights, but then he seeks to do something. He's a man of prayer who trusts God's goodness and power, and so he seeks God's intervention. For days and nights, he prays and he prays for months, asking that God would do something. He acknowledges the sin of the people, that they're in trouble because they did the wrong thing, 
but he also calls God back to the covenant, the agreement, the promises that he had made to bless his people. And he asks God to remember that and to be kind to them. And then he offers himself to be a part of that work and God answers his prayer. He goes to Artaxerxes the king, requests the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem and incredibly the king granted him everything that he asked and Nehemiah says, this was because the good hand of my God was upon me. And so now Nehemiah travels back to Jerusalem and begins the work of rebuilding the wall. And I think we can see in today's passage that there's kind of three stages. There's a stage of preparation, then inspiration, and then finally perspiration. I was pretty pleased with that one. Um, first of all, let's see the stage of preparation. It would have been a long and a difficult journey for Nehemiah to get back to Jerusalem. Uh, depending on the route they took, it was probably up to a 1,000 miles through treacherous, dangerous territory. It probably took two to three months to cover the ground. And so Nehemiah is careful just to rest when he gets there. For verse 11, I did nothing for three days. He's gathering his strength. He's renewing his vision. And then he does this full survey of the wall. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, verse 13, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. What follows is a very thorough rundown of his reconnaissance mission. It's all very detailed. And I think we're being told this because he, we're being invited to see how conscientious this guy is. He, he's like a project manager, someone who wants to make sure he knows exactly what he's doing before he does it. He wants to be fully acquainted with all of the challenges and also the possibilities, to, to have a good gauge of what things are really like. He's measuring out the task so that he can be sure that it's done. And I think this is one of the reasons why he's so cagey about it. You see, you'll notice throughout this passage how careful Nehemiah is to avoid attention. He went out by night. Verse 12, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Verse 16, the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to do the work. Now, now why is this? Why would he do this? I think partly it's a protective measure. Uh, we see from the very start that there's opposition to the work. In verse 10, we're told about these two guys, Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, who are displeased that someone has come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We'll look at them in detail next week, so I won't go into them now. But just to say, just to note, that Nehemiah understands right from the very start, as they begin this work, that there's people eager to stop it. So he has to be careful to make sure he doesn't reveal his hand too soon so that they can't sabotage his work. But it's not just that. I think his primary thought here is he's wanting to make sure that he is prepared for everything before he comes to speak to the people. You see, this is probably Nehemiah's first ever visit to Jerusalem. He's lived his whole life in Babylon. In fact, his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, who probably all lived in Babylon too. So he doesn't know what it's like. He's heard about what's life, what life is like here, but he hasn't seen it. He hasn't experienced it. And it's likely that the people that he's about to lead will feel this. You can just imagine how they might be sceptical of him. Ah, oh, here's this new guy. What, is, what does he know? When he starts to talk about, here's all the great possibilities we have, they're probably going to be thinking, ah, oh, but you don't know what it's really like here on the ground. And so Nehemiah is making sure that that 
accusation can't be levelled at him. He's preparing himself so that he can speak confidently and clearly about what is needed so he can have credibility. He needs to be able to show that he understands the problems and can offer a solution that's logical and feasible. Otherwise, the people will reject him and give up on the project. So he's preparing himself here. And then once he's ready, he moves into the second phase, and that's inspiration. This is really the trickiest and the most important part of the task. Wallace P. Ben says that Nehemiah understands two key points about his calling. First, that the vision was God-given and the vision would be people-driven. In the sense that God had put something in his heart for Jerusalem, verse 12, but it could only be fulfilled if the people grabbed onto it, if they became part of the work. So he has to connect these two, the vision that God has given him and the people here who are going to make it happen. And you get the sense that that's going to be difficult. Jerusalem was once a great city, a glorious city. Back when David had conquered the fortress of Zion and Solomon had built the temple, God's house, it was a wonderful place back then. But it's lost so much of its glory and the people are despondent. In fact, they've kind of lost hope. They're in great trouble and shame, we're told. They've lived in a broken city for so long that they can't imagine anything better. In fact, some of them might have even become inured to the problems. You know, when, when you see a neighbourhood that's just been run down for ages, people just accept it, don't notice it anymore. And this becomes the culture of that place. People get so, get so used to it that they can't dream of a better life. If all you've ever known is mediocrity and disappointment, you don't know how to demand something more. It's a bit like it's a bit like Essendon Football Club. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, I see you there. Uh, Essendon celebrated their 150th birthday last week, and they've got a glorious history. 16 premierships, eight Brownlow medalists, but they've lost all of that. <laughs> it's now 6,496 days since they won a final. I know this because there's a Twitter account that's dedicated to it. Uh, it was 2004 when they last won one which means that there's been a generation of people who've grown up not knowing what it's like for Essendon to be good, you know, to, to function properly as a club, to have backbone, to have skill, to win games regularly. And yet, of course, there's this glorious history before all of this, isn't there? There's a time when they were good. And if you're aware of that, you know what Essendon could be and what Essendon should be like. It's the same here with Jerusalem. It was once glorious, but it's lost all of that. And the people have lost the sense that it could be possible. But Nehemiah hasn't. He's never seen Jerusalem before, but he's heard of it. He's heard the stories. He knows of its glories and he can see a future. God has put into his heart to do something for Jerusalem. He knows what it was and what it could be once more and he's inspired by that vision and now he's going to seek to inspire the people with that as well. Let's see how he does it. First of all, he's honest about the problems. Verse 17, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burnt. He's blunt here. We're in trouble. He's not optimistic. He's not pessimistic. He's not fatalistic. He's just realistic. And he's specific about it. He's very clear. These are our problems. 
He's measured the task. He's done the work of scoping out the city. He knows exactly how bad it is. But then having identified the problems, he invites them to be part of the solution. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. See, it's not enough to just recognise what's wrong. You have to be willing to make it right. It's easy to be a critic, easy to complain. It's easy to talk about what things could be like, what things should be like. It's harder to make them happen. And you'll notice here, as Raymond Brown does, how the language shifts. In chapter 1, when his friends came from uh, Jerusalem to visit him in Babylon, it was their problem. We are, the, the city was in trouble and shame. Now it's Nehemiah's as well. You see the trouble that we are in. He's a part of this now. And then he invites them to be a part of his solution. Come, let us build. This can't just be me. I can't do it on my own. I don't want to do it on my own. I want all of us to do this together. And yet, of course, this is going to be a very challenging ask. After seeing the state of the walls, Nehemiah knows that a lot is required. So he needs to give them a compelling reason to get involved. And so he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. It's a striking phrase, that we may no longer suffer derision. And it's really the ultimate reason for why he wants this done. See, there's practical reasons. They need physical safety for the wall. But even more than that, there's something deeper here. There's something more visceral. It's about their honour, their dignity, their reputation, their, their identity as God's people. Perhaps they hadn't thought about it like this. Perhaps they'd forgotten of the significance of who they were, but Nehemiah hasn't. They are God's chosen people, his treasured possession. It's not right for them to be in this kind of state. In fact, it's it's not right for God's people to be in this. It reflects badly on God himself. See, in the ancient world, uh, we talked about this a little bit before, how, how they thought about their gods. Every nation they believed had their own gods, and so when you walked into a different postcode, you would have the god of that area, that territory, and that meant that the the nation's fortunes reflected on their gods. When the nation was doing well, then the god looked strong. When the nation was doing badly, then the gods looked weak. And so, as Raymond Brown puts it, it's a, it's a reproach to the name of God that his people are looking like this. The sight of those collapsed walls for over a century has created the impression in the pagan mind that Israel's God has abandoned his rebellious people and is no longer on their side. Or as T.J. Betts puts it even simpler, their shame puts God to shame. Now, of course, we know in the Bible that God is sovereign over all of these things. That he removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel's 2, but still, Nehemiah understands how these people are looking on and seeing this and thinking, imagining that God is weak. And so Nehemiah wants to see this wall rebuilt, not just for the people, but for the name of God himself. And in fact, we actually see this when the work is finished. Spoiler spoiler alert, they do manage to do it. Uh, And in Nehemiah 6, we read, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They realised that actually this God they thought was weak, this people that they thought was nothing, was actually something. That's what is in Nehemiah's mind 
Nehemiah's mind as he prepares this work. So he sets out this vision. He's calling them to be a part of it. And then finally he offers the encouragement that it can be done. Verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. You see, the people need to know, first of all, that the king is okay with this. Remember, Artaxerxes had stopped the work because he was told that this city was a rebellious city. This is where sedition and treachery was built up. And so he agreed with that. He said, oh, no, okay, we need to stop this. And so you can imagine that if they restart this without the king's permission, it will look like they're defying the king. So you see in verse 19, they're enemies. Are you rebelling against the king? Like, we'll dob on you. But, uh, but uh, Nehemiah, always the planner, has anticipated this. And so even before he left Artaxerxes, he made sure that he got letters from the king affirming this work. And so he can tell the people, it's okay, we're allowed to do this. The king is okay with this. But even more important than that is God's support. And so Nehemiah tells them of the hand of his God that had been upon him for good. This is the most important thing for Nehemiah. You see, God is in this, and Nehemiah has sensed this the whole way through. He understands that it was God who'd sent people to visit him in Babylon, who told him how things were going. It was God who had given him a weight in his heart for the sad situation of his people. It was God who'd prompted him to pray night and day for months, and it was God who'd answered those prayers. It was God who had blessed him in front of the king. The king granted what I said, for the good hand of my God was upon me. It's God who's given him this vision now. And verse 20, it's God who will make us prosper. God is committed to this because this is his dream. This is his place of blessing. It always has been. Psalm 48 sets out the vision for what Jerusalem is supposed to be. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. This is what Jerusalem used to be, what it's supposed to be. And verse 8, the city of the Lord of hosts, the city of our God, which God will establish forever. That's what Nehemiah has seen and read and understood. And now he believes that it will happen into the future. Well, it's a remarkable speech. And you can imagine the hearts of the people stirring as Nehemiah speaks. Perhaps they'd been cynical at first. Who's this new guy? But he understands the problems. He's inviting them to fix it, to be a part of that solution. He's giving them compelling reasons to do it and he's giving them the encouragement that both the king and God himself are behind it. And so they embrace it. They said, verse 18, let us rise up and build so they strengthen their hands for the good work. And so having seen the preparation and the inspiration, we now see the perspiration as they begin this work. We get into Nehemiah 3. If you've got a Bible, look along there. We have this long list of names. It's another long list of names. It's, I think it's the third that we've seen in this series, and it's not the last one either. But this is a very special one. This is a role of honour of the people who by their effort, their perspiration, rebuilt the wall. 
One writer suggests it's a bit like when you watch a, a sporting contest and, and the, the TV, they have, have the lineups before the game. These are the team, this is the team, these are the heroes. These are the people who will give their time, their energy themselves to this work. And there's lots of things that we can see here as we look through this list. The first thing you'll notice is the wide range of people. Uh, they come from all kinds of fields. We see lots of leaders mentioned here, rulers, government officials, priests, spiritual leaders, because this is a job for everyone, including the leaders. And there's lots of unlikely people. In verse 8, we meet a guy called Hananiah who's a perfumer. In verse 32, we meet uh, goldsmiths and merchants. In verse 12, Shalom brings along his daughters to help. Now, now this is significant because none of those people would have been expected to be a part of this work. They're not trained builders, they're not architects in the ancient world. You didn't have female tradies and so on. But here they come to be a part of it. And I love it. See, as I've said in previous years, I am entirely inept with my hands. Like, I can do some things. I can type fast. I can click. Isn't that great? Uh, I can sometimes do that thing where you spin a pen on your finger uh, without dropping it. Sometimes I can do that, but I can't do anything useful with my hands. I, I, I can't build things. If I try to hammer a nail into a piece of wood, I either bang my thumb or bend the nail. In our family, it's my wife, who is absolutely the tradie. It's far better than me. And I suspect that there were some people in this list of Nehemiah 3 who were the same. Bookish politicians and Levites, perfumers, merchants, but they all got involved. They all did their bit because they saw how important it was. And what's also noticeable is just how committed they are. See, they come from all over. They come from Jerusalem, yes, but also plenty of other places. Jericho, Tekoa, Gibeon, Mizpah, Zenoah, Beth Hakarim, Beth Zer, Keilah. Some of these places are 15, 20 miles away from Jerusalem. And so these people were making enormous sacrifices to do this work. They couldn't commute every day. They were travelling. They were leaving their farms and their families. They're leaving their businesses and their livelihoods. In a couple of weeks, we'll see how risky that was for them. And they're doing this for weeks, months. And so they're committed to this work. In the context of this, it's really shameful that there are some people who don't get involved. In verse 5, we read that uh, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. It seems that they're too arrogant for this. They, they can't stoop to do this. This is above them. They don't, they don't want to break their fingernails, but they look pretty stupid now. I mean, the here is this honour roll and they're not on it. And yet even here, God shows the commitment of his people. You see, while the nobles of Tekoa would not work, the people did extra. Verse 27, the Tekoites repaired another section. So they've done one section, the bit that there was allotted to them, and then they've done another one because they're just so passionate about it. They're so committed. This is all testament to how the people had grasped the vision. They wanted to be part of the solution. And so they were willing to give everything. They come from all over, all works of life, all places in the country, and they do all that they can. And there's something else happening here. There's lots of banging of nails and moving of stuff, but underneath all of that, there is a deeper work. They're rebuilding not just the wall, but the people of God. Uh, Wallace 
P. Ben notes how often we read in these passages that this bloke worked next to that person and they worked next to after this person. It's all, they're all coming together. There's this teamwork. They're all part of something bigger. And actually Nehemiah does a lot of stuff to foster this. He breaks up the work into 40-plus sections so that each part of it is manageable and achievable, but it also means that each part is essential. As one person writes, no, not everyone is expected to do everything, but everyone is expected to do something. You see, if, if one person didn't do their bit, there'd be a hole in the wall, and so the wall is useless. And really what they're experiencing is this physical expression of their shared identity, one people dependent on each other, shaped and formed by each other, the whole shaping the one, the one affecting the whole. And this is a, a lesson that Nehemiah makes sure they, they carry with them. See, wherever possible, Nehemiah makes sure that people get to do bits uh, just near where they work or they live. And so the priests rebuild the sheep gate because that's the closest to the temple. That's where they'll take the sheep. That's where they work. And we have several mentions of people who work opposite their house where they live. It's really smart because it, it makes them extra motivated. But it also means that they'll have this constant reminder of the work that they've been a part of. You know, in uh, the castle with Daryl Kerrigan, he's like, he's walking around his yard and he's so proud of all of the stuff that he's done, like the patio, and he's proud of the big antenna, and he's proud of the big gates that he's got. He's, he's proud of his castle. And in the same way, these people are going to look outside their window every morning. Every morning they get their coffee and they sit there like this. This is the wall that I helped build. I was part of something here. God did something in me and through me. We all did this together, didn't we? You're talking to your neighbour. We're all part of this. We're all part of one people. But perhaps the very best thing that I see here is how God used this process to redeem people, to restore people. Uh, you might remember a couple of weeks ago we heard how some of the people fell into sin and they're actually named in Ezra 10. They, they, they're named for the sin that they did. But a couple of them are actually mentioned again here, but in different terms. They're honoured. So Merimuth, for instance, is mentioned, and Malchijah, the son of Harim. Both of them were named in Ezra 10 for their sin, but they've repented, been forgiven, and are now welcomed back into God's work. This is an honour roll and they deserve to be a part of it. And it's a beautiful reminder that our past is irrelevant, that God can redeem anyone and use them in his work. I mean it. I just think of the misfits in the Bible. Mary was a prostitute. Zacchaeus ripped people off. Peter deserted Jesus. Paul persecuted Christians. Or to paraphrase a famous poem, Noah was a drunk, Isaac was a liar, David had an affair, covered it up with murder, Jonah ran from God, and Lazarus was dead. <laughs> with God, it doesn't matter your past. He can redeem, restore, and help you to be a part of his future. And actually, I think forgiveness is the big message in this entire work. You see, before this, God's people had lost everything. 
They disobeyed God's law. They've been sent off into exile. And even though they've come back, they're probably still not sure of God's forgiveness. They're in great trouble and shame. It's a little bit like if you have a, have a fight with someone and they tell you that they have forgiven you, but you still see the brokenness in your relationship. Every time they look at this wall, they see the debris. They see the debris of their relationship with God. But here, as it's rebuilt, as God strengthens them, as God brings them together, it's a tangible assertion, reminder that God has forgiven them, that the past is over and that he's inviting them into a new future. In fact, it's a future that they can't even imagine that's actually even more glorious than we might see, perhaps even than Nehemiah saw. You see, in Zechariah chapter 9, we're told that Jerusalem was the city where the Messiah, God's greatest hero, would come. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's talking about Jesus there, isn't it? See, one of the reasons God wanted Jerusalem rebuilt was that so he could visit it. Through Jesus, he could revisit it. And when Jesus came, he came to the city to rebuild the city of God, his people, the church, the place where his glory, where God's glory and power would be witnessed and displayed. I said last week that uh, Nehemiah is always pointing us towards Jesus, that everything that Nehemiah is good at points us to how Jesus is even better at that thing. And so I think we can see that here too. So Nehemiah prepared for the work. So did Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, God had set apart the people that he would save in time and history. Jesus understood. He measured out the task. Humanity has strayed and walked away from God. That sin that exposes us to God's judgment. The only way that we can escape that is if someone pays for that. The only way that that can be paid for is death. We can't do that on our own. So Jesus agrees to do it. He prepared himself for that. And then when he came to this earth, we see the perspiration of his work the literal blood, sweat and tears, as he went to the cross, as he took on the death that would repair our relationship with God and give us new life. And then rising again, he offers us his inspiration for a new work, a great thing that he is doing, the rebuilding of God's people. He gives us this great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And he invites us to be a part of this. It's not a physical church, although it's just as tangible. It's made not of physical bricks, but spiritual stones. 1 Peter, we are living stones and we're being built up as a spiritual house, the place where God dwells. If you believe in Jesus, then the Spirit comes to live inside you. And then it, it brings you to life and then he brings you together with his people to create this spiritual house that shines the light of God into the darkness. 
We do this first by coming to Jesus, the cornerstone, recognising our need for him and building our life on him. And then once that happens, God brings us together, gifting us and then inviting us to share these gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He invites us all to use what he has given us to be committed and to give everything that we have to build his people. And as that happens, we become God's fellow workers, 1 Corinthians 3. He uses us, he works with us and in us to make himself known, to make us a city on a hill that shines the light of God into the darkness, easing the trouble and ending the shame. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the wonderful example of Nehemiah and the inspirational work that they all did. Thank you for these heroes who humbly gave all that they had to do the work that you had planned for them. Lord, thank you that it points us to Jesus. Thank you that he gave everything so that we could be his people. And then now we are invited to be living stones. Lord, bring us together as a church, stone upon stone, brick upon brick. Help us to use the gifts that you've given us to build this church, this house, this city on a hill, so that we might shine to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.